Oh, thank you, Father, for that sweet, sweet presence of your spirit in our midst. Hallelujah, Jesus. Glory be to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name this morning. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Father God, this morning, with a heart full of gratitude, we want to bless you, we want to praise you. Indeed, you are the God from the beginning to the ending, the Alpha and the Omega, and everything in between. To your name alone be honor, glory, power, and dominion. Thank you for your faithfulness. In spite of everything else that's going on, you've shown yourself to be a covenant-keeping God. You are a faithful one. And so we honor you, we bless you, we praise you. Thank you, Father God, that in spite of COVID-19, we can yet bless you. We can yet praise your name. We can yet magnify you. Lord Jesus, even as we grapple with this virus, we want to remember our brothers and our sisters in Lebanon this morning. God, on top of everything else, they have to grapple with this terrible explosion that's taken hundreds of lives and displaced thousands of others. You said in your word that we shall ask of you and you give us the nations for our inheritance and the ends of the earth for our possession. You said from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, you said that your name shall be great among the nations. You said, in every place, pure incense and offering shall be offered unto you because your name shall be great among the nations. And so, Lord God, we know that Lebanon is part of those nations that will glorify you. It's part of the nations from which praise and righteousness will rise up unto you. And so, Lord God, we call them out this morning. For their pain, we say, Lord God, give them the balm of Gilead. For their displacement, we thank you for your supply. For their sorrows, we thank you, God, that you give them the garments of praise. We thank you, Lord God, that you will restore them in the name of Jesus. We honor you this morning because you said that all the ends of the earth shall remember. And all the kindreds of the nations shall bow them before you. For the nations is the Lord's and that you are the governor over the nations. And so God, we bless you, we praise you. Thank you this morning for the message that is coming to us. We honor you, Lord God, as I believe you for the wisdom for articulation. That the words you've placed in my spirit, you will help me to get it out. In a way, God, that will allow your people ears to hear 
and heart to receive. I thank you that it's none of me and all of you this morning. Blessed be your name because you are God. We honor you and we praise you forevermore. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. You may take your seats. Amen. All right. Again, welcome this morning to this online service that's coming to you from Lawrenceville, Georgia, World Outreach Church for All Nations, where we're still observing social distancing and all the other health guidelines. Uh, and so we bless God for this privilege. And so today I am going to give uh, the final installment in this series that I began seven weeks ago, Race, Relations, and Reconciliation. So today will be the final installment for now, for now. The scripture says to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 8 that the end of a thing is better than the beginning thereof. So I'm trusting God today that what is going to say to us today, in fact, will build the period, the point, the finality in what has been saying to us for a few weeks now. And so, in the beginning of this series, uh, the very first one uh, addressed what I called America at Crossroads, and I basically gave four statements. And, uh, and so today, and then of course, I think last week or two weeks ago, uh, just the issue of the three institutions that God will use to remedy racial injustice. The church, the family, and government. And within the church, we've been addressing the fact that we are the church, and we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so this morning, I want to move further, as I said in the final installment, by speaking and using its subject, the role of humility in reconciliation. The role of humility in reconciliation. Humility is a recognition of self in relation to God and subsequent submission to him. A person that is humble is free from pride and arrogance. The picture of humility in the Bible is a strong person who loves others, not someone who is a wimp. Because in our day and time when we hear the word humility, all of a sudden we just think, ah, this person is a weak person, is a uh, wimp. No, no, no. In the scriptures, when a person is humble, we see them consistently loving others and not being a wimp. God himself is the example of humility in the scriptures. If you go with me to Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, we'll see how God as a leader of the universe humbled himself by reaching out to Adam in his weakness. Genesis 3 9 says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Just to provide context. At this time, Adam had disobeyed God. 
and was in condemnation of death because he partook of the fruit that God told him not to eat. And so because of that disobedience, he was separated from God. God was the aggrieved person in that relationship. But yet in Genesis 3-9, we did not see Adam going after God to get things right with God. Instead, God, the leader that he is, and the humble person that he is, he, God, was the one who took the initiative, and please hear me this morning, he took the initiative and went and seek Adam out. And he says, Adam, where are you? Now, God was not asking where Adam was because God needed a GPS to know where he was. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. So he knew where Adam was. But what he was doing was giving him an olive branch, creating a safety harbor that allowed Adam to be able to be reconciled back to God. Again, in Romans chapter 5, in verse 6 and verse 8, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8, look at what the Bible says, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God did not sit in heaven looking at sinful humanity and saying, because you guys are so sinful, you guys look out for me. You guys seek me out. No. God demonstrated his humility in that while we were ungodly, while we were yet sinners, he, God, again, took the initiative and sought us out. Verse 8 goes on to say, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, in in Revelation 13, verse 8, I believe it is, says that Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, was slain from before the foundation of the earth. So God was not waiting for us to come. He was constantly, as a leader, taking the initiative to get things right. Now, let me move on. God understands that privilege has responsibilities. Privilege has responsibilities. The dominant culture in any generation, in any place, has the greater responsibility to reach out as we have seen and we will continue to see in scriptures. Now, let me say that again. I said that the dominant culture in every generation, in every place, has the greater responsibility to reaching out as we have seen in scriptures and as we're going to see much more in the message this month. So now, the question there is, what is dominant culture. What is it? Because I just said to you that a dominant culture has a great responsibility. So what is dominant culture? Let me define it for you. 
And this definition is coming to us from sparknotes.com. Sparknotes.com. The dominant culture in a society is the group whose members are in the majority or who wield more power, as was the case in apartheid South Africa, than other groups in that society. Ah, let me say that one more time. I'm having to repeat myself this morning quite a bit because I want to make sure you're getting it. The dominant culture in a society is the group whose members are in the majority or who wield more power than other groups in a society. Now, take for instance at Workfine. Workfine is World Outreach Church for All Nations. Take for Take Workfront for an example. In these congregations, in the congregation, there are more Nigerians than Ghanaians, than Sierra Leoneans, than Cameroonians, than Caribbeans, than African Americans, and so forth and so on. Therefore, at Workfront, the Nigerians as a dominant culture have the greater responsibility to reach love, and serve others within the congregation. Similarly, in this great USA, the dominant culture is that of white, middle-class, Protestant people of European descent. Now, before I move further, let me just take a pause moment and recall my affirmation and inclusiveness of whites from my previous messages. I want to make sure the devil does not have a foothold to misinterpret and recharacterize what I'm saying. I said to you last week how my life as a person, as an individual, has been blessed both by blacks and whites. Thank God. I said in the very first message on America's crossroads that whatever we are saying regarding black lives matter, it's not a repudiation of the whites or a condemnation of the police department, policemen? Absolutely not. It would be madness and insanity for me or for all people to think that. Why am I saying that? My first name is Bankole. I was born in Nigeria of Yoruba culture. By translation, that name, Bankole, means help me build a house. Common sense tells me no one builds a house with just all sand or just all wood or just bricks alone. No, when you build a house, you build with diverse instruments and products. Sand, wood, brick, sheetrock, 
tiles, carpet, plumbing, electricity, all various things bring together is what builds a house. I have been called by God to be a builder and not a divider. Therefore, I'm living true to my calling and my destiny as a builder. So I'm totally, completely inclusive of my black brothers, my brown brothers, my red brothers, and my white brothers. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 28 cannot say it any better. There's neither Greek nor Jew. Bond nor free. Male or female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Like I said to you last week, or maybe a week before then, every ethnicity on the face of this earth came from one parent, Adam. All of us are related. We may have different color skins, but at the end of the day, we all go back to one parent, Adam and Eve. So I have no room or time for se so segregation or discrimination or trying to pull one down to pull one up. No, no. We can do all at the same time. We can honor the black race while we honor the white race, the brown race, and the red race, red race all at the same time. We don't have to put one down to exalt the other because God does not do that. So again, let me say this. In the United States, since I got that out of the way, the dominant culture is that of white, middle class, Protestant people of European descent. Now remember what I said. I said to you that the dominant culture has the greater responsibility if we are ever going to resolve the issue of racial injustice. So now, very quickly, let, let me just move through the scriptures. I'm not going to turn to, to, to these particular passages, but I'm going to just give them to you. We see in Genesis 12, 3, I'm not going to turn there, how God told Abraham as the dominant culture, dominant person to bless the families of the earth. We saw in, jo in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, how God sent Jonah to bless Nineveh. Again, Jonah was a prophet of Israel. Dominant culture, going to bless those that were less privileged. We saw in these teachings at, at one point, in John chapter 4, verse 4, how the Bible says Jesus must go through Samaria. Again, Jesus, the dominant person, the dominant culture, going to bless the Samaritan woman. Now let's turn to the scriptures in uh, um, Acts chapter 6. Let's look at some examples in the scripture. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 in the NLT. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent, just as we have right now. See, I want you to see that nothing that's happening today is new under the sun. We're having complaints now. Certain group of people are saying we are being discriminated against. There's prejudice around us. We're saying that now. It happened in the Bible. The Bible is the source. Okay? There were rumblings of discontent that Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being what? Discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So you see that exactly what's happening now happened there. How did they resolve it? So 
The 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Okay? And so, brothers, select several men who are well respected and are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. So now, the point I want to make is, go back to that verse 2. Go back to verse 2 for me, for a minute. So the 12 called a meeting. Who are the 12? The 12 apostles. How did they fit in the context of what we're talking about? They were the dominant ones in the church at that time. They were the dominant ones. They were the ones who wielded the power. And so they did not wait for the Hellenist believers to cry, march, protest before they did something. They heard the complaint, and they, as a dominant culture of that day, took responsibility of the issue and said, let's fix it, and they fixed it. Glory to God. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. From verse 5 through 8. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, let's jump to verse 26. Now, this is interesting because here in Samaria, Philip was having a great campaign, a great crusade. Things were happening. But in the midst of the great things that were happening, verse 26 says, as for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Go on. And so he started out, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, an Enoch of great authority, under the candidate, the queen of Ethiopia, the Enoch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, let me just stop here. Let me, let me just provide the, the context here. So the Enoch traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. But for some reason, at that worship service, he did not encounter God. Perhaps because he was a Gentile. Perhaps he was not allowed to go in enough to really experience the worship in Israel, whatever the reason was. So he left, going back to Ethiopia. By the way, Ethiopia is in Africa. And God uprooted Philip who belonged to the dominant culture of that time, took him away from the incredible, wonderful revival, crusade, campaign that was going on. I said, now, you know, you go to the desert, because in that desert, I have one mind I want you to reach. So again, the privileged and the dominant culture was charged compelled by God to go and reach the one that was less privileged. In all of these scriptures I've shown you so far, 
the dominant culture served the less dominant one or the less privileged. Now, let me just go, let, let me begin to move into the closing of this message by going to Acts chapter 10. Let us learn three things from the model we see in and through Peter. Please give that to me in the King. Uh, okay, LLT is. Um, give, give the first seven verses for me in the King James Version, please. I mean, New King James, I'm sorry. Verses one through seven in the New King James. Thank you. Now, this is where we're going to close. I want to look, I want to look at three things that we can take away from Peter's model in Acts chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Don't miss that. This centurion was not a Jew. It was Italian, which means it was a Gentile. If you remember our study last week, the God-ordained separation by covenant that we have in the scriptures was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this was the beginning of the early church. So this Gentile, we are introduced to him in Acts 10.1. Now, verse 2 says, he was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in the vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius! And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Verse 7. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So here we go. Now go to verses 11 through 16 in the NLT. Acts 10, 11 through 16 in the NLT. Thank you very much. He saw, now so let, let me give you context there. So the angel appeared to Cornelius and gave him instruction to go get Peter. In the meantime, as this was taking place, Peter was on the rooftop praying. And in his prayer time, he had a vision. That's what we're about to read. Peter saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In his sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, that's Peter, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. And Peter responded, No, Lord, Peter declared. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Verse 15. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Oh, man. Maybe we need to pause there for a minute. Traditions. 
demonic traditions have tried to sow discord among brethren. They tell us the red people are not God. The blacks are not God. The brown are not God. The whites are not God. Seeds of discord. And God is saying to you and I and everyone else that's listening, don't ever, ever, never, ever, ever, never, never, ever call unclean or not good anyone that God has created. No matter the differences in your skin color, no matter the differences in your background, in your heritage, we have no right whatsoever to call anyone else unclean or not right. Because when you go back to the beginning of the book in Genesis, when God created all things, he said, good, and then very good. So if God called the brown man good, they are good. If God called the white man good, they are good. If God called the red man good, they are good. If God calls the black man good, they are good. All humanity created in the image and likeness of God are good. You ought to repent if you think otherwise. Change your mind and agree with God. Hallelujah. So here is Peter. God is showing him a vision. And in this vision, God is showing him pigs. And according to Jewish tradition, pigs are supposed to be unclean. And God is saying, listen, I created the pig. Just like, just like I did the mutton or the lamb or the sheep. I'm the one that made them all. God said, kill and eat. And he's arguing with God. As some of us argue with God even now. Oh, I can't deal with the white man because, you know, uh, they're just rednecks. Oh, I can't deal with the black man. You know, black folks, man, they, they wear this uh, thing on their sagging pants. I, I can't trust them. We come up with all kinds of things that divide us rather than finding the common ground of what brings us together. They're arguing with God. Peter's arguing with God. But God says to him, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Next verse. The same vision was repeated three times to show you how stubborn Peter was. To show you how many of us are like Peter. Black, brown, white, and red. Some of you have been listening to me for seven weeks and you have not moved one inch in your position. You see, see the white man as a problem. You see the policeman as a problem. You see the black man as a problem. You see the brown man as a problem. You see the red person as a problem. You are the problem. Yeah. And you need to get your heart right with God. Yeah. yeah, yes, there are differences. And yes, there are issues that we must resolve and talk through. But we have to agree with God first. That's the baseline from which we move. If you miss your baseline, you have no other anchor. The vision was repeated three times. So the number one thing I want to say about this Peter's model, number one is, if the dominant culture is going to take responsibility for reconciliation, number one, you must grow spiritually. You must grow. Peter had to grow beyond his cultural bias. 
to be used by God. Now, even though I'm challenging the nominal culture this morning, the truth is, the message applies to all of us. All of us, whether we are dominant or not, all of us still need to grow. All of us need to grow. I'm just saying that the dominant culture has a charge, according to scriptures, to be willing to humble themselves, reaching out and getting their brother or their sister and bringing them into the same place as themselves. But that does not exclude the rest of us from doing our part. We all must grow spiritually. You see, Peter had been shaped by outdated cultural traditions and false teachings as many of us are today. Please give me 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 in the King James, or rather in the New King James. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit. You know why? Deceit? That word deceit is there? Because as long as you think you are superior or better, you are deceived. <laughs> if you think because of the color of your skin you are better than somebody else, you are totally completely in massive delusion. You are deceived. So therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, which we're going to see in a minute, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the world that you may grow thereby. When we come to the word of God, we must come totally, completely void of our uh, 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 normal way of thinking. We cannot think into the scriptures to get something out of the scriptures. We have to come clean. We have to come like a, like, like a software that's totally clean so that we can write a new program on you. That's the only way it works. Amen? Through the scriptures, we develop the strength to confront and destroy the strongholds that threaten our lives as individuals and as a church. So number one, grow spiritually. Number two, we're going to find this in Acts chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. New King James. Acts chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. And I'm going to need to spend a minute on this one. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Verse 20. Arise therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So number one on this pattern is grow spiritually. Number two point here is go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Peter, after he had seen the vision, and it had been clear to him that he was supposed to go, he made a quality decision to follow the instruction he had received. Now, you must understand how, how critical this whole uh, thing is in the life of the early church. This was the first time that the gospel 
was going to leave the Jewish enclave and reach the nations. Okay, let me say that in different, different language. Up to this point, the gospel, the church, the early church was only a Jewish, uh, was only made of a Jewish congregation. This was the first time that God would break out among, from among the Jews and take this message to Europe, or if you will, to the nations. So Peter's obedience was critical. God sends his followers, you and I, out of our comfort zones to places and circumstances that require us to express faith to accomplish God-sized tasks. We have to trust God to move out of our comfort zone. And I know I'm speaking to some, 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 some of us here today. We have to move outside of our comfort zones. All of us are comfort, or rather comfortable, when we're just with people, with, with people like us. It's easy. But when you have to break out and be with another group that's not like you, it's a different story. God-sized task will always involve sacrifice. Look at Acts 10, verse 24. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. The following day. In other words, if you read the verses above that, you notice that Peter traveled all day and had to get to Caesarea the following day. In other words, it was not a quick trip. It's not like getting your car and go to Kroger. It's not like getting your car and go to, to, the, uh, to, the, to the theater, to the grocery store. No, no, no. It was an all-day travel, an overnight travel. In other words, it involved a certain element of sacrifice. It cost them something. It was not convenient. So if you and I are going to be agents of reconciliation, you must understand there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. Now, let me move on and still under this number two point on go and do likewise. I'm well aware of many Anglo-Saxon ministries that's ministering powerfully abroad. I see them all the time when I travel. They're in Africa, they're in Asia, all over the world, doing great work, by the way. But the challenge is, while they are doing great work abroad, they make very little effort to help at home. The Bible is very clear, according to Luke 24, verse 47, that we should preach repentance and forgiveness of sins, beginning at where? Jerusalem. So my message, your message, our message lacks integrity. If I'm going to transverse across the waters, across the oceans, fly three, four, five, ten thousand miles to go preach, feed, reach out to children, men, women of other colors, and we don't lift a finger at home. It lacks integrity. It would be like a pastor canceling a parishioner to love his wife 
while he himself is not loving his own wife. That message does not resonate. Look at Luke chapter 10. I'm still on Luke, I'm still on go and do likewise. Luke chapter 10. In verse 31, <laughs> Jesus was telling the story here, a parable, because he had told this group of people that they should love the love by their God with all of their heart, their body, their soul, and their mind. And then he says they should also love their neighbor as themselves. And they asked the question, who is my neighbor? Oh, Jesus said, oh, really? You want to know who your neighbor is? Good, I'll tell you a story. So he went ahead and told them the story of the good Samaritan. And you can read that in Luke chapter 10. But let me just cut through the chase. In verse 31, now by chance a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Who did he see? He saw the dying man on the road to Jericho. Verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Please, don't forget. The priest and the Levite were Jews which means they belonged to the dominant culture of the day. It should, have, it should have been their responsibility as a dominant culture to see one who needed help and to offer the help. What did they do? They passed by the other side. Don't miss the point I want to make. The priest and the Levite did not wound the dying man. They did not cause the problem. But they were irresponsive to his plight. Therefore, they did not act neighborly. Ah, let me translate this. I feel my preaching coming on now. There are many that will say today, I am not a racist. And I will not argue with that line. Because I don't know you, and you may very well not be a racist. But what I want to say today, that it is not good enough to just not be racist. We must move from there and be anti-racist. In other words, it's not just good enough to say, well, I'm not a racist, but I'm seeing racial injustice all around me, and I'm saying, well, as long as I'm not one, really, I have no responsibility. Lie, 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 lie. It doesn't work like that. The prison they live has not caused a problem. But by not doing something about the problem, they became culpable. And that's why Jesus put them in the book. They were not neighbors, or rather they were not neighborly. No, they were not. So it's not good enough to say, well, you know what, bank, I'm not a racist. Good for you. But it would be better for you to not be racist and yet and also become uh, also be anti-racist. Which means you are actively 
fighting, speaking, and doing everything you can in your own sphere of influence to correct the injustice. That's what Paul did in the book of Galatians chapter 2. Give that to me in verses 11 through 13 in the Passion Translation. And I'm going a little beyond the time I thought I was going to spend on this message. But this is the last one. Let me get it out. <laughs> but when Peter visited Antioch, he began, he began to mislead the believers and cause them to stumble over his behavior. Do you see that? So I had to confront him to his face over what he was doing. He enjoyed being with the non-Jewish believers who didn't keep the Jewish customs, eating his meals with them up until the time the Jewish friends of James arrived from Jerusalem. Do you see that? It's all right to talk to the black man, the brown man, the red man, the white man, as long as my friends are not looking. Because they're going to roast me. So, hey, oh man, hey, what's up, man? I talked to them, but when the other guy shows up, hey. When he saw them, he withdrew from his non-Jewish friends and separated from them, acting like an Orthodox Jew, fearing how it would look to them if he ate with the non-Jewish believers. Can you believe that? Now, don't forget, this is the same man that God used to go and talk to Cornelius. Same man. And he's acting like a chameleon, like many of us do. We put on our church face when we come to church. Hey, glory to God, hallelujah, bless God. You get in the parking lot, go home, go to the marketplace, go to your school, go to your uh, 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 business. It's a different story. God, help us in Jesus' name. And so because of Peter's hypocrisy, many other Jewish believers followed suit. Refusing to eat with non-Jewish believers, even Barnabas was led astray by their poor example and condoned this legalistic, hypocritical behavior. This is one thing I know about our children. Children are so innocent. They are so pure. Kids will play with anyone. They get along with anyone until adults begin to inject them with racial poison. We are the problem to our children. God help us and deliver us. Now, very quickly, several obstacles that threaten to keep us in our shell, and I'm still at point number two. I'm going to run through this very quickly. Number one, fear of failure. If I reach out, what will happen? Number two, apathy and coldness towards others' plight, just insensitive. Number three, busyness. Number four, false teachings. Number five, vain traditions that keep individuals, and in particular the church, from trying new things to reach out. So I made two points already. Number one, we should grow spiritually. Number two, we should go and do likewise. And number three, last point, and I'm closing. Sow the seeds of love. Sow the seeds of love. Acts 10, 24. Sow the seeds of love. Acts 10, 24. The next day, they arrived in Caesarea where Cornelius was waiting anxiously for them and had gathered together all 
of his relatives and close friends. Can you imagine if Peter did not obey? God had touched the man's heart. He was waiting for a messenger, for someone to bring the good news. He was waiting. Verse 25. The moment Peter walked in the door, Cornelius fell at his feet to worship him. Verse 26. But Peter pulled him to his feet and said, Stand up, for I'm only a man and no different from you. Oh my God, did you see that? I'm only a man and no different from you. I'm a black man, but I'm not different from you if you're white. I'm a black man, but I'm not different from you if you're brown. I'm a black man, but I'm not different if you're red. Do you understand that today? And I'm a white man, you must understand you are no different because you are white. We're not different. We've believed a lie. God deliver us. Verse 27. They talked together and then went inside where Peter found a large gathering waiting to hear his words. They were prepared. They were ready. They were ready. And I just want to challenge the dominant culture again today. God has already prepared the hearts of the men and women he wants you to talk to. They are waiting for you to sow the seed so God can get the harvest and our society can become better. Peter said to them, you all know that it is against the Jewish laws for me to associate with or even visit the home of one who is not a Jew. Do you see that? This, you see the cultural bias? He said it's, it's against our law. We are not supposed to do this. Okay, so if you are not supposed to do it, why are you doing it, Peter? Peter's answer is, I'm doing it because I'm the dominant culture. I'm doing it because I've been charged by God. And God's charge trumps, overtakes any other tradition or custom that we know. Yet, God has shown me that I should never, oh my God, I should never, ever, ever, let me just add that in there. Please, God, I can, I can, I, I'm sorry. I should never, ever, ever view anyone as inferior or ritually unclean. I pray that same prayer for all of us this morning. White, black, brown, and red. That we'll begin to see that no one is inferior. And no one is definitely unclean. Go on. Verse 29. So when you sent for me, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? Now let me just stop there for a minute and just break this down. A proper understanding of the context is important to appreciate why Peter was reluctant to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The reason for which he was arguing with God originally in Acts chapter 10. In this passage, we find Peter receiving a divine revelation to take the gospel to someone who's not only of a different ethnicity, you must understand this, but also someone who represents the enemy of Israel. Do you get that? Oh my goodness. So God was not only asking him to go and preach to the Gentiles, specifically to those who were validated as enemies of Israel. How comfortable would you be to go preach to ISIS? 
or Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram. How comfortable? God showed you a vision, say, okay, Boko Haram, they're waiting. The Mombasa camp. I'm going to send you there to go preach to them. ABK, go preach to them. ISIS, they're waiting. They're waiting in Afghanistan. I'm going to send you, Lola. Go pray for them. Now, I'm saying that so we can understand the context of what Peter faced. He was being sent to the enemy's camp. The man to which he was sent to go preach is a military man, military general. Truth is, if God didn't send him, his head would be on the chopping block. He knew that. However, the Bible says that Peter entered the house and declared in verse 34 that God does not show favoritism. I know for certain that God does not show favoritism with people, but treats everyone on the same basis. This is the reason we must sow the seed of love. No favoritism. White, black, brown, or red. None. It treats all of us on the same basis. So when Peter stepped through Cornelius' door, watch this, he had to step over hundreds of years of hatred, false teachings, and cultural differences. He had to walk away from the applause of man to seek the approval of God. I wonder how Pastor Lee would feel if God said him to go and preach to the KKK. I wonder how he would feel. I wonder how excited Lee would be to say, man, I'm going to go and preach to the KKK. I'm going to go and preach to Duke himself. The grand wizard and bring the word. Or vice versa. If God was to send a Duke to us, how open are we going to be? But Peter stepped over Hundreds of years of hatred, false teaching, and cultural differences to honor God and to obey him. Why? Because Peter was the dominant culture. He understood that being the dominant culture carried with it greater responsibility. He sowed the seed of God's word. And God has given us assurance in his word that every seed that we sow will reproduce after its own kind. So as Peter obeyed God, give him lastly Acts 10 verse 44, please, in New King James. Okay, it's fine. Let me just read this and go and close. While Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit cascaded over all those listening to his message. Go on. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished 
as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So finally, those three points again, we need to grow spiritually. We need to go and do likewise. And we need to sow the seeds of love. God helping us. God will reconcile all of us. All the broken walls, all the broken hearts, all the injustices will be righted as we become right with God and we seek to honor God. And so, Father, we thank you again for the privilege that we have to bring this message this morning. I've sown the seed. Only you, God, can bring forth the harvest. And so I trust you, Lord, that you will do what you always do, that in and through our acts of obedience, you honor your word, and your word never returns unto you void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So I pray for my brothers and my sisters, particularly of those of the dominant culture, God, that you give them the courage to humble themselves and honor your word and grow spiritually so they can go likewise as the Samaritan did in Luke chapter 10 and sow the seeds of love. As they go, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are walking along with them, doing and bringing forth signs and wonders to heal wounds, to reconcile brother, brothers and sisters, so that your people can become whole. Thank you, Father. We honor you, we bless you. And Lord Jesus, if there's one here today that is not born again, that does not know you, we do not want to close this service without giving them that opportunity. You paid the ultimate price, uh, ultimate price. You were the one that achieved for us reconciliation. When you went to that cross, you reconciled us back to God. And so this morning, Father God, paradventure, there's one person who needs to be reconciled to you on the basis of what you've accomplished, what you have done already. We want to pray for them now. So if that's you, you don't have to do anything but just believe. Believe that Jesus, in fact, came died for your sins, was raised again from the dead, and now lives for your victory. If you just simply say, Jesus, save me. I want to be born again. Help me, Lord Jesus. I believe you. If you just simply say that, you'll be born again. And so, Father, I want to thank you right now for those who sing that prayer for the first time. Every man, every woman, all over the world, who's calling upon the name of the Lord, and you said, all those who call upon your name shall be saved. And so, Lord, I thank you right now for their salvation through the power and the blood of the Lamb of God. Thank you for bringing them home unto yourself. Save them gloriously. Give them an assurance of heaven. And thank you, Lord, that they will begin to grow in their experience so they can go and sow seeds of love. We thank you, we bless you, now and forever, in Jesus' name. Amen.